Good morning, everybody. For those of you that don't know, I am not Pastor Dave, although my wife is pregnant with our six. Now laugh. <laughs> there it is. <clears throat> so I'm going to do a, uh, we got a lot of verses here to, uh, to cover and a lot of information within these verses that is important for us. And so I uh, don't really have much of an intro other than what I just did. So Dave's, uh, what he covered last week at the beginning here of John chapter 17 was really the introduction to the rest of these verses. So this section is broken up in three ways. You have the first five verses, which is Jesus praying for himself, which Dave covered last week. And then there's two sections that I'm going to cover. Verses 6 through 19 is Jesus praying for his disciples. And then verses 20 through 26 is Jesus praying for the church. So let's go ahead and, and get started because we've got a lot to look through here. Verse 6 says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So in verse 6, what we see here is a gift given that in us should evoke great humility on our part. It says, the Lord was given certain people. It says, I've manifested your name to the people that you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, God, and you gave them to me, Christ, and they have kept your word. So you can clearly see that God gave us to Christ. I don't know about you, but within me, that evokes a humility. That evokes a a passion, a desire for Christ that I've been given to him. And that there's a responsibility along with that. But we were gods before we were Christ. All people belong to God by virtue of the fact that he is the creator. All life begins and is under God. But that does not necessarily mean they belong to Christ. Those that belong to Christ is as their redeemer. They've put their faith in him, their trust in him as their savior. They have trusted in what Christ had told them and shown them, and they have believed and put their faith in him. And this group of people that verse 6 is talking about, these men and women have been given to Christ as a spiritual gift. Now in verse 7 it says, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. So in verse 7, we see not only was he given certain people, but he was given certain things. Okay, These men had entered into these things. Jesus had shown many of these things to an unbelieving world. But the world refused them and hated him for it. How different is it for us when we make stands biblically and we stand on God's truth? People don't like it. Just last week in the uh, Des Moines Register, there was an article about a a, uh, pastor who prayed before the beginning of the legislature and people are all up in arms because he asked for forgiveness for, for the sins of the people. You know, people don't like biblical truth. So now they want to just outlaw the prayer from it altogether. Because that's what happens here. But these men, these disciples that were now with him, they had believed. They had recognized that the things given to Jesus had been given to him by the Father. So you're probably wondering, you know, what are these things that I'm talking about here? Power to cleanse lepers. They saw him do that. Power to raise the dead. Power to heal the sick. Power to set possessed people free. Power over demons, over nature. He was able to give sight to the blind. And he was able to speak words of life like nobody had ever heard before that led to salvation. Those were the things that they had seen. It was a special miracle for these men to see these things happen and recognize that the source of their occurrence and the source of the power was from God Almighty. It is like a man 
being born physically blind, but now able to see the wonders of a flower or the vividness of a sunset with all its complexities? And is it no different for us when we come to Christ? Once our eyes are opened and we recognize the forgiveness for our sins and now the beauty of Christ and that our sins are now covered by His blood. I mean, it's like all of a sudden I can see and we're awakened to the beauty of our Savior and this gracious mercy of God. In verse 8 it says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. So the opposite of that is also true. Many heard and did not believe. Jesus is pointing out an undeniable and sad truth that not everyone who hears will believe. There's plenty of people that I'm sure we've all spoken to and we've shared the gospel with that have turned their back on you. That started from the beginning when the gospel first started coming forward. Did Pilate believe or Caiaphas or Herod Antipas? Not for a minute. Did the educated rabbis believe? Gamaliel, for instance, the revered disciple of Hillel and the teacher of our young Saul from Tarsus. Did Caesar on his throne believe? Or Philo, the renowned teacher of Alexandria. Did the scholars on Mars Hill and Athens believe? No, but it was true. Whether or not someone believes does not make God's truth less true. Believing 2 plus 2 equals 5 does not change the fact that it equals 4. So atheistic belief does not undo God. does not change the fact that there is a God in heaven. That there is a God who has put all these things together. So all those folks, they heard they did not believe. But what we do see is Peter, James, John, and the others, they did believe. The belief of these men in Jesus' words as coming from God and in Jesus being sent by the Father. He had given them the greatest gift available in the universe, knowledge of what he was and who he was, culminating in the gift of salvation. Their eyes were opened. They were given to Christ. They recognized the source of the power. They followed him. They were bought into him. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus here speaks that he's not praying for the world. It's an interesting phrase, right? But let's make sure we don't jump to any conclusions or proof text this that Christ does not care about the lost, which is why it is so important to take the Bible in whole as opposed to pieces. I taught a course at a couple different churches on how to study the Bible, and you could take one verse, and a lot of people will do this and do what's called proof texting. Well, they'll take this, a verse like this and go, well, Jesus doesn't care about the lost. Or everything else is mechanical. And that you have to take everything in its whole. That, there's a reason in your Bibles, there's those references down the middle, right? Most people just look at them but never really have any idea what they do. There's references down the middle. So if I want to know and I want to figure out exactly what all of this means as it relates to verses 9 and 10, then I'm going to follow every reference here throughout the Bible, throughout those other pages, to all those other verses, and I'm going to keep going. And if I do that, it's going to show me every relevant verse in the Bible that's tied to this verse. That's why your references are there. So the Bible in whole and the life of Christ give clear testimony that he did care for each and every person. This is so vividly seen as he is here quickly approaching the cross. By 3 o'clock tomorrow, he's going to be dead. So that's, that's what's in the shadow of this prayer and everything that's going on. 
But the, his disciples were the men that were going to take the gospel into a dying world. So in this moment, with that cross looming, it was more important that he pray for them instead of the world. They were on his heart the heaviest at this point. He knew what was coming. And that's where he was focused. The words of Jesus in these verses talk of his disciples kind of in an almost a perfect way. Even though we know what is coming, everything from Peter's denial to them scattering, their fear of man, the inability for them to stay awake in one of history's darkest hours. But Jesus says, I am glorified in them. But I am glorified in them and their weaknesses and their failures and what he knows is to come and what he has seen in the past. He is saying, I am glorified in them. Why? You see, we are no better than the disciples. And even in their failures, what they did get right brought glory to Christ. None of us are perfect. I am far from it. I'm going to assume everybody else is too, unless I'm the only one. But living the Christian life is difficult. As a matter of fact, living the Christian life is impossible. Only one person did it right, and he died on the cross. But that doesn't mean we don't, we don't strive. That doesn't mean we don't pursue. You know, Jesus wasn't looking at them any different than he looks at us. If we are true believers, he sees us as complete in him. He sees us as complete in him, even in our failures. Even in, the, even in the fog of this world, of all the things that we cling to, that we put in front of him, he still sees us as complete in him. That is a, a humbling thought to me. And, and just when you, you feel good about your performance for God, or even guilty for your lack of performance for God, we get a view here of how God sees us. We see how Christ sees us. Our sins are covered by the work of redemption of Christ on the cross. And we are seen as though we are complete and perfected in Christ. Not in and of ourselves. No matter how much service I give to the church my entire life, it doesn't bring me any closer to God than I can be in Christ. In Christ is where it's at. All my years of ministry, everything I've done, if I don't cling to Christ, is meaningless and worthless and adds nothing to it if Christ isn't the center of it. It's not about what we can do. And it's not about what we can get out of Jesus or what we can get out of God. In verses 11 and 13 here, we get a view into Christ's mindset. There's only a couple places where we kind of see the mind of Christ a little bit and, and what he's thinking. Here it says that he is, he is, he's, in this prayer he's saying that he is no longer in the world. So he's already seeing himself as finished with the world, at least from a physical sense. Because as I said, by 3 o'clock tomorrow he's going to be dead. So without his physical presence, he is now asking for special protection from the Father for these disciples. This world we live in that hates Jesus and believes they're putting him to death will very soon hate the disciples with the exact same level of hatred. Extreme. Jesus knew the world was not going to change anytime soon. In fact, he knew the world would not change at all. Remember, Jesus did not come to change the world. He came to call out a people to himself. 
We cannot change this doomed world through politics or anything else. But just as Christ did, we can change lives through the power of the gospel, and that is what we're called to do. Not change the world. This world is dying. It's going to go away. That's wonderful. Unless you love the world. Then you're going to be disappointed. So Christ has to be at the center of what you love. Then you won't miss this world. We see here, not one was lost except Judas. Judas was not a true believer. He was a hanger-on looking for personal gain. He's what Matthew 7.21 talks about of those that you know, preach the name, did this, and they, they make an argument to God about, well, I did all this for you. And he says, depart from me for I never knew you. That was the camp that Judas was in. And the word Jesus uses here for lost in the Greek is apollum. And it occurs 12 times in John. It is the strongest word used in the Greek language for stating final and hopeless destruction. And it is always tied to non-believers. It is a very sad statement on him. The term son of destruction used here is used only in one other place in the Bible, in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, in referring to Satan. So that's how Christ was describing him in this prayer. As lost as though he was Satan. We then see Jesus switching to the subject of joy. He wants us to have the joy that He has. The joy that comes from a holy unity that unites us to God through Christ. What Jesus fulfilled on the cross should give us great joy. A joy and hope of what is to come. Even a joy and tribulation knowing at some point these days will come to an end. Is it not tribulation that gives us hope? If everything was great and perfect all the time, it would be harder and harder to cling to Christ. It is in tribulation, it's when, it's when things go wrong and bad and terrible that we recognize and Christ becomes even more beautiful to us and more important to us. He wants us to have that joy. That joy in our heart that should excite us, that should grip us in such a way that it makes us want to share the gospel with others because we want them to experience the joy and the hope that is in Christ. Knowing what they're going to face in this world, he wants them and he wants us to look at him as our Savior and the ultimate treasure in which we find true joy. Is there, is there life beyond Christ? Is there happiness beyond Christ? Is there existence beyond Christ? Where's your joy? You know, in Christ alone, right? No. In Christ in my 401k. No. In Christ in my house. No. In Christ in my car. No. In Christ in my bank account. And probably those things actually before Christ because that's really where my security, my joy, and my safety net is. No. It's supposed to be in Christ alone. Verse 14 says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. The dividing point of Christians in this world is the word of God. Make no mistake about it. Your love for the Word of God determines the attitude that the world, your friends, family, and co-workers take with you. The closer you hold the truths of God's Word in love may push people away, but it may also draw them near. And the key phrase I use there is holding the truth of God's Word in love. Not casting judgment 
on people, casting you're going to hell on people, in love to people, the gospel, the good news. We hold to those truths as people that love the Lord and we should love the people, those lost, equally. At some point, we have to reconcile our hearts to the fact that we will not find common ground with this world. And honestly, we shouldn't even be looking for that. But I see so many people and denominations and things I read in magazines of, of trying to find some kind of unity with this world and common ground with this world. It's not there. It's not meant to be there. In 1 John two fifteen through 17, it says this. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What's the secret to abiding? Do the will of God. What's the will of God? Exposed. It's not a secret. And if it's red letters on white paper, you don't need to pray about it. FYI. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world, living with a purpose that points to Christ. Living with a purpose that points to Christ. Living with a purpose means my life has intention. It means my life has a purpose. And I don't know about you, but I want my life to count for Christ. I want it to mean something for the gospel. Because I love my Savior. And I don't deserve anything that He has given me in this life. From my family, my kids, to even be able to support six kids. Think about that for a minute. If that doesn't put the grace of God into perspective for me, nothing will believe me. But yet God provides. God meets my needs not only in this thing, but in salvation and in heaven and in the hope of what's to come. And I cling to that. I love that. I live that out and I try, but I still fail because I'm not perfect, right? Verse 15 says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, some of your Bibles, next to where it says evil one, there may be a little number because the translated here could be either evil or evil one. So they're fairly synonymous because the evil one brings evil. So he's saying keep them from evil, keep them from the evil one. So notice this though, okay? He's not asking that we be removed from the world. He's not saying take them out. It's not what he's saying. He is praying for our protection from evil and the evil one, Satan. Knowing the evil of this world, Jesus is not saying, hey, take them from the battlefield. Instead, he's saying that the strength that secures our salvation, that the hope that we have in Christ be available to us in temptation. We are kept from the evil one through our union with Christ. If I have, my salvation is in Christ, and my faith and my trust is in Christ, I cannot be taken away from him. If I count on him in those moments where I'm struggling with temptation and I'm struggling with sin, he's to be the center there that I cling to. The word of God in my mind, working through the Holy Spirit, reminding me, don't do those things. Cling to Christ. Find more joy in him. Find your love in Christ. Find your joy in Christ. Find your purpose in Christ. And the things that tempt you won't be so tempting. And the things that grip you won't be so gripping. Because if I love Christ more than I love this world, and he means more to me than anything else that's out there, 
it is easier for me to fight against the sin that clings to my flesh. I mean, James, it talks about, you know, being stained. Our flesh is stained by sin. And it's hard to get stains out. I, I love that phrasing only because it helps me to see how difficult it is to work sin out of my life. Because I know how hard it is to get a stain out. I mean, we're using OxyClean. We're using some Tide stuff now. Got that marker. You know, it's not easy to get stains out. And it's not any different in this. But we, we get a little victory in one area of our life. And then the next time we get a little bit more victory and a little bit more victory, next thing we know, that, that sin, that temptation, whatever that was, doesn't have nearly the hold on me that it once did. And I, and I start to see through the fog of all these things that d- detract me from the glory of Christ, and I start to peer through it. And I start to see how, how gracious He is and that I can actually overcome some of these things in my life. And I can bring Him more glory and honor that He deserves from me. That fog will ultimately be cleared away on Judgment Day, when nobody will have a doubt of the gloriousness of Christ and the evil of what they've done on this earth. Verse 16 says, They are not of this world just as I am not of the world. This is, this is a reminder of our alien status that I, that I spoke of earlier. We should again be gripped by the understanding of what's to come. And that understanding should change the way we relate to the world and to others around us. In verse 17, it says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. One of the hardest truths for us to deal with, and we must get this into our hearts, is that what God has to say about everything is true. What God has to say about everything is true. I've had I don't know how many countless debates over my years in ministry of Christians who go, well, you know, it might be true. Well, you know, I allow some room for error in there. Well, under the biblical pretense of the Bible, that's not acceptable because then what I am doing is I'm creating my own ideas in my own gospel, if you will, in my own God, and then I'm going to create my own heaven that exists for me. And that's not biblical either. God's truth here is another separating force. When you take stands for the biblical truth, it is a separating force. We must also understand the end of God's truth is not wisdom. It's holiness. We are to be pursuing holiness in our lives. The Word of God, the truth of God, is meant to transform us into the image of Christ, not make us great philosophers. That's not the end goal here, is that you can philosophize about the Bible and about what the great man Jesus was. And that I can go around and stand on a street corner and be really knowledgeable and thespian even in my understanding of this esoteric Jesus who came in to save the world and this, that, and the other. And I can now just talk about him in such a way. It's not about wisdom. That is not the end goal. The end goal is holiness. We are to be transforming into the image of Christ. Verses 18 and 19 says, You sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Christ coming into the world was not by accident. He came with a purpose to draw people to himself, that they may be saved. He has given his disciples and us, in Matthew 28, that exact same directive. We are to be going out into the world, as the disciples did, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. He died so that we may be set apart in His truth 
to spread His Word to a dying world. Now as we look at verses 20 through 26, Jesus is now praying for the church. So all that we just went through was Him praying for His disciples. And we see what's implicated there for us. What the challenge is for us to live out. What we are supposed to be doing on a daily basis. Him praying for them was no different than Him praying for us as disciples of Christ. If you are a believer, if you have put your faith in Christ, you are a disciple. And He is expecting these things from you as well. But verses 20 through 26 says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that you also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So that whole section, he's praying for the church. And here we see him passing this, the individual mission from paying, praying for the disciples and what they are going to do to now it's a global mission as he's praying for the church, united body of Christ that are uh, church members following him. This would be carried out by the church that would thrive and grow through the work of these disciples. In these words, it's as though Jesus is seeing all those who would believe as a result of what these first Christians did in the power of the Holy Spirit. In these words, not only did he pray for them, but he prayed for the future us that would believe and for those that are going to come after us that will believe. We were on his mind. Verse 21 begins the clear theme of unification between us, Christ, God, the Holy Spirit, and each other as Christians. Now glory here refers to God's special presence. The acceptance of Jesus' glory is the basis of Christian unity. Common belief in, trust in, and reliance on Jesus. Love is not worth anything unless it is rooted in the reality of Christ. Otherwise, it's worldly, earthly love. It's emotional love. It's the kind of love that comes and goes. It's the kind of love that says, <clears throat> Jay, I love you this week, but the minute you talk behind my back, I no longer love you and I'm walking away from you. Okay, that's earthly love. Biblical love, godly love says, Jay, I'm going to be God for a second. No stone throwing, please. <clears throat> says, Jay, no matter what you do, I am going to purpose to love you whether you like it or not. Because you put your faith, your belief in my son, and I am not going to let you go. And I don't care what you try to do. You're not going anywhere. That's biblical love. It's the kind of love we should have in our marriages. We purpose to love no matter what. We love through everything. So the same kind of unity here, the Father and the Son enjoy within the Trinity... Verse 21, just as you are in me and I am in you, verse 22, as we are one, Jesus revels in his unity with the Father throughout the book of John. Christians have long affirmed the Trinity as having unity of purpose, action, and identity. That's what we're supposed to have with one another. We are limited as finite beings, but that is our calling. And our unity is derived from Christ. Everything we do should be for the glory of God. We can picture unity of purpose, 
We can even picture unity of action. But what about identity? Verse 21 says, may they also be in us. Verse 22, I in them. Whatever you are, you are first and foremost Christ's, saved and redeemed if you are a believer. Your identity is in Jesus. Each of us is called to be a branch of the vine of Christ. And each branch has things in common with other branches. We're united in Christ. Individually and collectively, we are the body of Christ. And the body exists to serve the head. Who's the head? Jesus. So how deep is your understanding of this? Is it it something that transforms your relationships? Makes you overlook things that annoy or frustrate you in this life or others? We're branches. We're going to get pruned. We're going to get cut. We're going to get trimmed. So why does Jesus want us to be one? Verse 21 says, so that the world may believe you have sent me. Remember, this whole section here is dealing with the church. Verse 23 says that the world would believe. Our unity is meant to be a brilliant testimony to this dying world. Our unity is not the result of a human decision to pursue a common goal or because we are good and easy to love. No, it's because we recognize our sin, have repented of it, and accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And the same is true of others in the church. God forbid that we let our petty grievances overshadow our testimony to a dying world. That if all they see when they look in the church is fighting and bickering and grievances and all this kind of stuff, what kind of a testimony is that? How does that shine back to our God who has saved us? We are to be united in Christ, pursuing holiness. Also to that, verse 26 says, you have loved them even as you have loved me. This should make your heart jump. How are we to be loved by God? The God of the universe, the creator of all things, with the same love as he loves Christ. The perfect lamb of God, agent of the world's creation. This is the glory of the Christian gospel. Because of Christ's sacrifice, God sees Christ's beauty and righteousness in us. He does not see our filthy rags and sin. Do you think of Jesus as an, as an affectionate Savior? Do you see him as a loving Savior? Look at the words here. Jesus longs to be with us. Here at the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus looks into heaven in the age to come when all his followers will be with him and he says, I want that day to be here. And you can almost tell it probably has a longing to it, knowing what's to come. He says, I want that day to be here. Jesus wants to show us his glory. Jesus' request started being fulfilled only a few hours later when the Holy of Holies that concealed God's glory in the temple was torn in two. One day we will see him. This should be an encouragement to our praise, to our worship, to our daily routine. So how do you have a firm, unmovable faith to anchor your soul in this life? Remember that you are God's. We plant our faith deeply in Christ. Jesus knew we would face trials of, all, trials of all kinds in this life. And he has not left us without hope. The idea of unity of the church kind of captivates the world. And unity is something real. Something that can and will be realized among the followers of Jesus Christ. Our unity, our testimony, what we do, how we take the gospel forward, whether it be into other countries, other cities, or other towns. That's what we're to be known for. Around the workplace, around the sports fields, that's what we should be doing. So that was all the setup to this. Our unity with Christ, God and the Holy Spirit, should strengthen our walk. 
It should build a desire in us to want to pursue life the way Christ has shown us to pursue life, with Him at the center. We are called to be insulated, not isolated from the world. We're not to live in Christian bubbles surrounded by Christian people standing in Christian buildings. He left us in the world. We are insulated in the world because of our salvation and our security in Christ. So I'm insulated. I can't be taken away. So I can go out. I can go to the hard places. I can go to the hard areas. I can do the hard work of Christ with a passion for them and not worry about what's going to happen because my life belongs to Christ and I'm ultimately insulated by Him so I don't have to worry and try to isolate myself from the rest of the world as though there's some secret mission there that I'm on that nobody can know about. We don't hide our purpose. We are to be in and with the world, always touching it, seeking to change those within it. But we are not to be of its nature. The Spirit and God in us must prevail, not the world. This is the call to apartness, sanctification, to holiness, not unfriendliness. We love the world. We don't hate the world. We're in the world to share with them the love of Christ that at some point, if you're a believer, somebody shared with you. No glory comes to Christ by reason of our isolation. Jesus prayed for us to be in the world. It is our job to stay there. To focus on Him. To serve Him. To understand His Word. To give the Holy Spirit more to work with inside of our heads by reading His Word and understanding it. And being serious, purposeful, intentional Christians. I pray that we would all just have that vision of that our beautiful Savior and we would see his holiness in light of our sins and in light of our failures and in light of all those things he still loves us and he still cares for us and he doesn't leave us and he doesn't abandon us and he doesn't say you're not good enough so you're done with you. No. He draws us in and he gives us his love, his purposeful, intentional love. It's that same love that as a body of Christ in this church should be a symbol to the world out there that if they were to come in here, they would go, man, something is different about this place. Something is way different here. And those that have walked, we've all known people in our lives that have walked with Christ faithfully for a long time and they just have an attractiveness about them. You know, that people just kind of kind of are attracted and drawn to them. There's a certain, almost like a charisma about them because of their love for the Savior and their love for other people, that people are drawn to them. For me, that was my grandfather. I came to Christ because I saw what was in my grandfather and I saw how people were drawn to him. And I saw how he tried to take every conversation and turn it into a conversation about Christ. And he always wanted me to know. He said, Nikki, he's the only one that can call me that. <clears throat> He said, Nikki, it's, it's not me. It's Christ in me that makes me different, that makes me special. And he always wanted me to understand that. He's 96 years old. He still works one day a week, which is crazy. But he uses that, and his purpose in it, he has made clear to me even to this day, is to continue to be able to share the gospel with people as much as he has opportunity to. And so he still works one day a week, and that's his goal. I pray we would become those kinds of lights, those kinds of people that I know we all know that just draw people in and 
have a magnetism of their love that is rooted in Christ in them. I pray that we would all get there. And as a body, people would see that. And they would see the love of Christ in a new and different way and the hope that is within him and put their faith in him because we were faithful as a church. And we were faithful as disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, these words just sit so heavy on me. Father, I pray that your spirit would work them into our hearts, into our minds, Father, that we would be truly faithful to what you've called us to do. Father, I pray we would want our lives to count for you. I pray that we would want the mission of this church and the mission of the gospel and the mission of Christ to mean something in our lives, Father, that we would get it below the surface of our thoughts, Father, and get it into our hearts. Father, I pray that your hand would be upon each one of us here today that we would be faithful, we would see the gospel go forward, that lives would be changed, not for our glory or for our work, Father, but for the glory of Christ in this world. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.